This is On Mike with Jordan Rich, where conversation is alive and well, conversation with creative people who have something to say. We're jumping into history today with one of our favorite local historians, Nancy Rubin Stewart, award-winning author and journalist, and her new book is called Poor Richard's Women, Deborah Reed Franklin and the other women behind the founding father. That founding father, of course, is Benjamin Franklin. That's a vivid portrait of the women who loved, nurtured, and defended America's famous scientist and founding father. So time to meet the author of other great books, including Defiant Brides, the untold story of two revolutionary-era women who married radical men, and The Muse of the Revolution, the secret pen of Mercy Otis Warren and the founding of a nation. We welcome Nancy Rubin Stewart, joining us now on Mike. I learned so much from this book, Poor Richard's Women. It's terrific, and Nancy Rubin Stewart is terrific. We're old pals. We did some work together on a previous project, and I want to welcome you back. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Let's talk about the research. Uh, you dug into a lot of, had to, a lot of letters and correspondence because there wasn't any uh, Entertainment Weekly back then. <laughs> <laughs> he was Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> He was a media mogul. That's what he did. But to answer your question, Jordan, uh, yes, um, I, you know, the Library of Congress had digitized most of the Franklin papers um, that, of course, were done originally by uh, Yale University in cooperation with the American Philosophical. So even though I began this book 26 years ago, I put it away twice and, you know, only took it out again in, I think, 2016. And to my surprise and delight, the Library of Congress had digitized most of his papers. He, he He's written about 30,000 letters. So it's quite a task to be able to go through that in hard copy volumes. I, I'm, all, yeah. I'm always amazed when, when, and you write about this, of course, as a historian about the length of time it took for letters to reach people, even in the States, in the colonies. But he's writing letters to We'll talk about Deborah, his wife, that took, what, weeks, months to get there? Yes, sometimes months. And, it, yeah, yeah, long time. And, of course, many <laughs> were lost. Um, you know, I also want to say that um, as a historian who used to transcribe for the uh, Franklin Papers at Yale University, Claude Ann Lopez, who did uh, two earlier books on Franklin uh, and his women, not specifically on his women, but really it was the personal Franklin. And and so that was, a, you know, a very helpful guide. But of course, that was a while ago. And, you know, looking at it, as I did in this book, from really a feminist perspective, um, you know, certainly 21st century perspective, you know, it becomes even more powerful in terms of what happened is, is, is you know, and, and then what one could say. Indeed. Well, let's take a look at the subtitle, Deborah Reed in Franklin the and the Other Women Behind the Founding Father. It's called Poor Richard's Women. And Deborah... Has a makeover in this, thanks to you. She's a, a historical figure who doesn't get a lot of press and attention till now, and she's often relegated to the frumpy, dumpy, long-standing wife, and that's about it. We learn a lot about this lady and how important she was in his life. She was really important, and you know, in his autobiography, he gives her. He his autobiography is more or less about him and his accomplishments. Um, of course, it's written many years later. He does admit that she was, you know, a very good wife uh, and that she was a great helpmate. Um, and uh, he even does admit at one point, no, not in the, in the that she's thrifty and, you know, she worked very hard. But basically, um, that's sort of all. There's just a few sentences in this rather long autobiography that he wrote three different times. Um, so... 
But Deborah also was a colonial woman. She could read and write. She was a middle-class daughter of a, of a carpenter and a, sort of a contractor, um, but she was not taught to spell. So as a result, the letters that we do have, and by the way, a lot of them are lost, especially during Franklin's first journey to England, those letters are terrible spelling. And historians in the past, traditional, looked at it and said, ah, you know, this is, a, you know, dismissed her as an ignorant, stupid, provincial woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is the way the, well, that's the way it came down up until quite recently when feminist scholarship began to, began to, you know, unearth what was, what was, what she was really about. And it turns out she was, yes, yeah, she wasn't an intellectual like Ben. She, she certainly wasn't as well read or educated. He was self-educated, but brilliantly so. But she was a terrific businesswoman, and he does admit that. He does even say to a French friend much later in life that it was he was fortunate uh, that uh, he had in and um, he was lucky in in a wife to have one as thrifty as she, and thereby became a fortune to me. Now, Nancy, let's talk about the business that she basically ran for decades and did the books, as we say, quote unquote. He yeah. was in the he was in the printing business, and he developed a good following and and all that. But she was the one who made sure the trains ran. They didn't have trains back then, but made sure that the that the postage was taken care of and the bills were paid and uh, people were taken care of that way. Very important role. Yes, very important. As he said, she was she he really he even admitted at some point that she was really the more thrifty than he, which which is kind of counterintuitive. We think of him as the <laughs> penny you know, saved <laughs> penny saved, penny yeah, earned yeah. kind of person. But she was and she did we think that she probably learned um, <clears throat> a lot of her sales and business techniques because her mother ran a very profitable ointment and, and uh, salve business um, before that. So Deborah probably helped her mother with it and got some pretty good training. No sooner did she marry Ben than she took over his little stationery shop, which wasn't doing too well. His printing business was doing well. And she turned it into a general store. And it became, you know, very successful and, and also made a lot of money. And she also helped him. She collected rags so that he but could be converted to paper for his, his printing. Um, she did many of his books. He, in fact, in the American Philosophical Society, there are many ledges with her handwriting in the side. But um, he even when he went on journeys uh, early in their marriage, he even appointed her a power of attorney, which was incredible for a colonial woman. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I was, women were in the house. That was it. You I know? was so impressed when you when you tell her story, and we'll get to the part about her being the uh, the poor wife at home while husband is off on business trips, quote unquote, all over the world. <laughs> but she she was also in, in, important because she's helping to raise the family, not all of whom were quote unquote the original <laughs> legitimate members of the family. No. Let's let's t- <laughs> maybe we should take an offshoot right off the bat and talk about uh, children born out of wedlock. They seem to follow Franklin around quite a bit. <laughs> this is true. Um, yes, she's married six months to him. Well, it's a common law marriage because he had broken his engagement with her when he was in England. She married someone else who turned out to be uh, a slacker, to say the least. He took her dowry. He gambled her. I don't know, somehow frittered it away. He ended up running off to the Barbados. Uh, rumors he was killed that left her in a strange situation. So when Ben came back from England four years later after courting other women unsuccessfully, he he um, he finally proposed to her again. And uh, all he says in his autobiography is, uh, I took her to wife on September 1st, 1730. 
Which meant they moved in together. It was a common law marriage. Right, right, right. But let's so, talk. Let's talk about the the child that wasn't expected. Let's. So six way. months later, I mean, she's relieved because she's sort of married to Ben, and we'll just say that, and she's happy because she was a sort of strange woman, not married, not single before that, and he arrives home with this bundle in a blanket. Mm-hmm. And um, she can't. Um, she cannot, uh, she arrives home with this, this, he arrives home with this bundle, this blanket, and inside is a little baby boy. And of course, he does admit in his autobiography, he did cohabit with low women, end quote, quote, unquote. And apparently this was, was the result of one of them. Although some scholars think that he probably uh, had a mistress who was married to someone else whose husband was away because if this child was the product of a prostitute, then he didn't have to claim it as his son. But in this case, he did. Well, Deborah was shocked. She didn't want to take care of this child. She's all of 21, 22 years of age. Uh, and yet she as according to family memoirs, she did that. She said out of her great tenderness for Ben, she did agree to raise this child, Billy. Oh. William, and he later becomes the uh, royal governor of New Jersey. Yeah, he's, he's an interesting character because he's he's a loyalist during the revolutionary period. But what was her relationship with Billy? It was grudging at first. Did it remain that way? It really did. Um, there's a, a few accounts of later on when he's a young man, and there are many incidents that are involved earlier with him not being exactly the straight arrow Ben would have wanted. Uh, but anyway, at one point, he's walking down the street and she's with somebody else who's a visitor. And she said to him, there goes the greatest villain in the earth on the earth. And I guess she started to use some expletives and curse in a way. <laughs> this gentleman who, who writes about this said he was shocked that a, that a gentlewoman would even know those words. But later in life and, and well before the revolution, he, you know, he goes to England with 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 his father, but later he returns with his bride and she has accommodated, you know, she's respectful um, with him and they seem to have an okay relationship. I think there's a lot of tensions and much later when she dies alone in Philadelphia, because Ben hasn't returned, Ben, uh, Billy uh, scolds his father and said, you know, Mm. scolds him that he, he should have come home because she just longed to see him and it just broke her heart. Yeah, it's a long-suffering marriage, although loyal she was to him, uh, apparently. And we'll talk about whether he was uh, loyal to her. I think the answer is no, even if it's just uh, flights of fancy. Ben Franklin is known for a lot of things. And I said to you before we started recording today, you'll get the complete timeline history of Ben Franklin, his accomplishments as an inventor, all of the work he did uh, in the colonies to sort of organize postal services and militias and all that. And then, of course, the international events. So it's all there, but the real overview is his relationship with women. It's terrific. So he goes to England, and he ultimately gets to France and all that, but that's where things start to happen of interest, including a thing, I'll call it a thing, with, uh, what's her name, Margaret Stevenson? Stevenson, yes. She's fascinating because she's sort of a long-standing relationship with him, isn't she? He he boards with her. She's a widow, middle class widow in London, central London, and she rents rooms to to uh, travelers. So, but he soon becomes ill, and she she nurses him in a very intimate way, and she soon helps him pick out English clothes, and she introduces him to many English customs, 
Uh, once again, he'd been in England when he was young, but much more. They began to socialize with other people, and most of their friends just considered them an item. Um, and he's very careful at first what he writes to Deborah. Yes, he, he, he absolutely floods Deborah with English presents, English fabrics and goods and china and candle snuffers and whatnot. Deborah, for her part, also sent Ben many, many commodities, uh, apples and buckwheat and all kinds of American goods in turn as presents. And now and then, Margaret and, and, uh, and Deborah would have a cordial exchange of notes, mostly through Ben. Um, but the, the relationship is really incredible. Um, maybe it's sort of a sly or a winking look the other way. She knows, I mean, he went over there in his early 50s, so this is not an old man at the time. So, and Margaret's about his same age. So clearly there's, there's a lot of warmth. At one point in his letters in the second voyage, he writes to Margaret, he writes to his wife, Deborah, that Margaret is the very greatest lady in England. That, you know, that really had to hurt. Indeed. Uh, and you, know. you, you wonder, Ben Franklin, a man of letters, so brilliant and so deft with the pen, the quill, and yet he, uh, the affairs of the heart sometimes get in the way. Son. You do, you know, and he even writes much later to her daughter, Polly, that after, long after, when he's much older, to Polly, that living with Margaret had been among the happiest years of his life. So, you know, there's just no... There's not a lot of question that it had to be more than just landlady and renter, if you will. As you write and and dig through the history, you've done so well. He did a lot of things with the ladies. He attended theater. He well, well, I'll get to those things in a minute. But he attended theater, and went to dinners. Had a lot of lavish food and and the culture. We'll get to France too. I mean, all of this sounds like a lot of fun for a guy, whether he's moving in another direction or not. And, well, I might as well go there. Do we have any pinpoint proof that he was physically involved with these individuals, or was it simply hearsay? Well, you know, Ben is very careful with his pen, and he's very careful to cover himself. So I want to go back to when he was in his, um, he was 48. Mm -hmm. I want to go back before he went to, to England the first time to be with mm -hmm. Margaret. Mm -hmm. And he's on a postal tour in New England. And he meets a relative through marriage, a young woman who's 23. I guess she's quite pretty, but very right, bright. Right. And they have a wonderfully delicious, well, more than flirtation. It's, it becomes rather rather serious. And there's this terrific lettuce between them. And she actually begs him to um, to get rid of some of them and hopes he's, he's going to. And she's going to get rid of some, too. And he escorts her back to um, back to Rhode Island because she has to go back to her home in Block Island and and uh, then he, he, when he doesn't hear from her later, he, he writes things like, you promised to send me kisses in the wind. Um, so, you know, there's this quite a bit of, it's, it's pretty explicit. And he's a little upset that she won't sleep with him, um, which she doesn't. Um, she's 23, she later marries, so the, who will be someone who becomes the, former, the later governor uh, of, uh, of, uh, of Rhode Island. But um, he writes to her that, you know, she wouldn't let him in this carriage ride, two-day carriage ride, obviously staying over an inn somewhere or with relatives, that um, somehow um, that she wouldn't let him teach her multiplication. <laughs> <laughs> How do we multiply? Let me show you, my dear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, clearly there was a Rome. Uh, yeah. A, a middle-aged romance and infatuation. Yes, it wasn't physically consummated, but before, that, that's one. Okay. Be, before you we know, get to 
Oh, go and ahead. It's fun. He's just charming and fun. And when I was writing this book, you know, you can't help but just love him. No matter, I mean, there are pictures of him. He's this bald, fat, pouchy kind of guy, but he's he's charming and he's delightful. So you can understand why women were, were taken with him. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, but I will also editorialize here and say it makes all of us guys who don't look like Tom Cruise feel a little better. <laughs> You know, the, the bald, fat, uh, uh, long hair, kind of brilliant, geeky guy. Um, l- l- that was the question I was going to ask. Uh, what did most of the ladies who found him interesting and and fooled around or flattered him and, and took his tease, what did they find most alluring about him if it wasn't so obvious? In- well, first of all, he, he knew how to flatter them, but not in a, in a disgusting or obvious way. I mean, he truly did admire women and their beauty, and he, he makes no bones about that. So it, it's come from the heart. Secondly, he's brilliant. So his conversation is brilliant. I mean, he's he's world-famous scientist and, of course, world-famous statesman, and he's adept at um, repartee, at a parlor talk and, and matching wits. In fact, a lot of the historians think, oh, he didn't have any real romances. They were just parlor games. They were just fun. But if you read the letters, or, as I did, yeah. you can see that a lot of them were for real. Well, you did mention, I think, somewhere in the book that he was compared in France to Voltaire for his fame and and mm-hmm. personal glow. I mean, he was revered like a superstar, like a, like a rock star. Absolutely. When he arrived, you know, every town was... Uh, had festivities around him and and begged to have him stop and and you know fed him with all kinds of food and celebrations and so on uh you know and he ride through the streets he was a celebrity of his day Can in we, france let's talk about france because he, yeah. there are at least two women both madames and uh both of them are i i think Terrific characters, even though they're real people, they are almost made up. They're so great. Uh, and I won't pronounce the names. I'll butcher them. But let's talk about his his dalliances in France. Now, he was in France for a reason. What was that reason? Primarily? Yes, and it's a reason we all have to be grateful for because he was finally sent um, uh, by the uh, Congress uh, at the beginning of the revolution um, uh, to um, plead with the French to have loans and funds to support the revolutionary army because we were in pretty bad shape. And he was very sly about it. He didn't come in and just ask for it from Nguyen or the, who was part of the Royal treasurer, uh, the court, but rather he, he socialized greatly with everybody and got mm. to know them much like, you know, a good psychologist would do and got to know their habits and what they liked and made friends with this one and that one. And of course, Adams was John Adams when he came out thought, oh, this man is just a loafer. He's just taking advantage. He's going to the salons. He's staying up late. But no, this was all political. He got to be so well liked and respected and admired aside from his scientific just his his intelligence and his brains, and I'm sure he was working political machinations with well, what would happen with England, and if they didn't support it, what would happen, and so on. But this is so he was there for a very good reason, and ultimately, by the way, starting in 1778, he did start to receive funds, and this went on for quite a few years. But um, while he was there, he was introduced um, to a charming young woman who was 33 years of age, a very well known musician. Uh, we'll call her Madame Brion. She has a very long French name. And she was beautiful. She was said to be the most beautiful woman in France. 
Uh, she was such a talented musician. She favored the, the new piano forte rather than the harpsichord. Mm -hmm. And Boccherini even um, dedicated a sixth piano sonata to her. She was that well known. She was married through an arranged marriage to a much older man, a loveless marriage, but she had two children. But she fell madly in love with, with Franklin. And what followed are over 100 letters from her. Uh, and, and he returns them too. He, he, he is struck with her beauty and her, she's very intelligent. And they have a quite a delicious romance. She sits on his lap in public. She's shameless about it. She calls him mon cher papa. She kisses him um, in public. I mean, it's, it's mm. all out there. And uh, they start to be together regularly on Wednesdays and Saturdays. She even plays chess with him. She's in the bathtub. There's a plank over the bathtub. Americans got all upset about that, but it was a plank <laughs> over it. That was the style. And, um, and uh, even her husband said, I think you've been kissing my wife. Um, but then again, he was having an affair with her, with their governess, for their children. Of so, course, of course. This was France, you know, at the time. Well, one thing that, that uh, I wanted to remark on, have you remark on, the fact that he was, from a diplomatic point of view, able to pull off an amazing feat, the king of France would soon be facing his own revolution and to support our revolution. I mean, just the, the machinations that Franklin had to go through to cajole his way in and, and make the point. I, I think it's a remarkable achievement that you brought out in the book. Yes, he, he, was, he was just the most astute politician and diplomat. Um, and, you know, people genuinely liked him. Uh, it wasn't just, you know, because maybe America could offer something to France in terms of the European politics. He had his grandson, uh, another interesting chap uh, <laughs> with an interesting background with him. Uh, explain who the grandson was and uh, his backstory. Yes. Well, he's William, his his own illegitimate son or out of wedlock son is, I guess, most socially appropriate at this point. Son um, had um, been in England with him uh, before that and been trained as a barrister. And while he was there, he, he fathered in a, uh, a child with somebody, we don't know the mother. Uh, he left the child there. Ben really sort of took him, well, sort of uh, unofficially took, took him in and made sure he went to the right schools in England and so on. So mm. then they came back briefly to America. Uh, son's name, the grandson's name is Temple. And he then brought Temple with him. And by the way, one of one of his own grandchildren, um, uh, Sally's, his daughter's child, oldest child, with him to England. And Temple was supposed to be serving as his secretary while he was in Paris. So, but Temple, <laughs> although Ben loved Temple and admired him, Temple was a bit of a wild guy too. And by the way, he, he eventually he eventually fathers another out of wedlock child. The child doesn't live, but you know that's the that's the um, three generations yeah. Franklin Franklin fault line, as I put it. The Franklin fault line. No, it's really it's really fascinating to, uh, and most people don't even know that if they're just casual observers of American history. But it it says a lot about the times and about the uh, uh, you talk about feminist uh, history, uh, the the role that women had. It was very subservient, obviously, and. There wasn't much that women could really do about it. I guess you could shame somebody in the press for having an illegitimate child, but he still went on and had a career. I mean, that that was Absolutely. interesting. Now, there's yeah. another another French madame who's more age appropriate. <laughs> Let's talk about her, Madame H. Yes, yes Madame Helvetius. Well, you know, when, when Madame Brion won't sleep with him, ultimately, uh, he pouts about it. And then he decides, well, 
there's nothing wrong with me being with other women. I admire young women and I'll be admire them and go to salons and meet people. And he soon is introduced to Madame Helvetius. She's very different than Madame Briand. She's much older for one thing. She's uh, a widow. And, uh, but she's known to be a, a fabulous salon hostess. So some of the great minds uh, in, uh, in France uh, uh, congregate at her home on a regular basis. And that's where Ben is introduced to her. Mm. And um, they have a romance. Uh, but she's a, she's quite unconventional. After her husband died, she she just kind of threw away all French traditional conventions. I mean, her garden was sort of a wild garden. It wasn't all the sculptured garden. She had um, an aviary in there. She had all kinds of animals in there. Her home, she had 18 cats rolling around in her, <laughs> inside her estate. Um, she um, had no no concern for convention anymore. And she had a really scattered social life. She was very well known and admired, um, had been very beautiful younger. Um, she would fleet back and forth to Paris. She had these three young men who lived in her estate. They kind of kept tabs on her and kept her as their social secretary. But a lot of times Ben would get dressed up. He'd be invited for dinner. He wrote a funny letter saying, I bathed, I dressed, I quaffed. I made myself as respectable as possible. I came with a carriage with Temple, my grandson, for dinner. And I got there and lo and behold, I was told by one of your men that he'd, she'd completely forgotten and she was off to Paris for an engagement. So, but she did flirt outrageously with him and he fell in love with her. And there's some charming letters between them. You know, both these women are incredibly independent in their own way. Jordan, you talk about, you know, there was women were subservient that, well, these women and Deborah in her own way were really quite independent in their own, you know, yes. in their own feminist right. confines. Right. And so ultimately he tried to, he proposed to her and uh, she, um, she would, well, she would reject it, but in a playful way. And he kept proposing. And finally, he became so passionate about it and almost, I think, almost violent that she became frightened and she fled to France, to, mm. uh, to south of France. Well, and then later she returned and they became good friends, as seems to happen with all of his previous romances. You, 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 ta- you talked earlier, and, and we're chuckling because this is universal stuff here, folks, but you talked earlier about him being, shall we say, frustrated when his attentions were not uh, – taken seriously. And uh, men react in odd ways, even great men like Ben Franklin, <laughs> when they're told no, and they, uh, they, they come up with things. Now, uh, talk a little bit with me about Sally, because she's a fascinating character. That's a daughter, the adult daughter of Ben Franklin. Mm, and yeah. uh, uh, she's, um, I get the impression that she was not too pleased with the way her father behaved, um, <laughs> uh, to put it mildly. Well, there's a lot written about Sally and in other books, too. My, my focus is, is, is more on his romantic, but I certainly do talk about Sally. You know, Sally, whose real name was Sarah, was his, his one daughter who survived, an earlier son, uh, not William, but a little child had, had died before that. So it's his only child. And while he did lavish some gifts on her, he always was lecturing her forever on being thrifty and being moral and being good and going to church. And he did not, um, did not encourage her to be educated the way, you know, he did love to have the way the French women were so educated. He didn't encourage, he encouraged her to be a colonial, a good colonial wife. Mm-hmm. And um, so he's in England and Mrs. Stevenson's daughter, Polly, uh, is very bright and he gives a lot of attention and warmth and affection to her, but you don't hear those kinds of of you don't hear a lot about that to Sally at all back in in um, 
and he's frustrated with Sally because Sally won't go to England because actually Deborah won't let her go. Um, and he, so he's frustrated with her, but he most of all, he wants her to be a good person. He's very sober um, with her. And when she finally marries against his will and she marries a former Englishman who actually became a debtor, he is horrified and absolutely mm. won't even talk about that for a year with Sally. It's as if she isn't married. He won't even mention the, the groom's name. It isn't for till a year later when he finally breaks the ice with them. And so it's a, quite a contrast when Sally does marry and have children and his, and Margaret Stevenson's daughter has children. He is continually comparing their, their grandchildren, mm. um, you know, and, and, and sort of matching Deborah with Deborah's pride in her first grandchild with Polly's grandchild. It's, um, you know, it's just, um, it's very uncomfortable, I think, um, when much later in his last years, um, it is Sally, who, by the way, eventually has eight children. It is Sally who does all of the nursing of him in his last right, years of right, his life. Right, right, right. Well, mm-hmm. she's the daughter, and no matter, yeah. blood is still thicker. And I, I, I keep coming back to what you said earlier, and the book points out that he didn't come back to the colonies, to the States, when his wife was obviously ill and wasn't going to last and never saw her, right, before she died. He didn't know. I mean, in his defense, and, you know, in his defense, he was very busy uh, with uh, Parliament for a long time trying to quell the terribly oppressive acts, uh, the tyrannies and all of the restrictions and the occupations and so on in America that led to the revolution. However, it was more than a year uh, after he actually got he got embroiled in a scandal. Uh, uh, it was really inadvertent, uh, but anyway, he was blamed by the British. It was that point that he he became disgusted with the British and really began to side fully with the United with what would be the United States, right. the young country. And yet he stayed in England. And the historians to this day have speculated on to why did he stay. We knew. We knew that Deborah had already had a stroke and was not doing well. And in fact, she got to the point she couldn't do any of the uh, any of the um, the bookkeeping or anything like that. And he took away those privileges from her, uh, actually. So, you know, she admits and he admits that she's getting more frail. And there's warnings from her doctor that she's not going to last that long. And yet he stays. There are lots of theories about it. But the point is, he didn't stay. He didn't come home for that year. And she died in December of, of uh, 1774, just before the revolution. The fact that he lived to his 80s, right, at that point, yes. and he was back and forth uh, on the high seas, risking mm-hmm. death every time he got on a boat, as everybody did back then, and also disease and just, you know, what happens to his body is, is in great detail told in the book. But, I mean, that's the way it was. The doctors bled you. That was their only real – that right. and laudanum, I guess, they would give you or opium or whatever. But that that whole saga, the fact that he survived and outlived many of these women, it's really, uh, really a fascinating tale. Yes. Well, of course, he also had gout, which, you know, we know now is caused by an excess of uric acid, especially in men. But it's also related to some dietary uh, overindulgences. And <laughs> yeah, he ate well in France. <laughs> <laughs> too much wine. Well, one of the Madame Brion gives him a lecture about it. And she takes on the part of Mrs. of the gout. Mm-hmm. 
she lectures him. He spends too much time, you know, at the chess table and not enough time exercising. He's not eating properly. And this wonderful dialogue about it. But, there, you know, he had other issues, too. He had, he had gallstones, uh, kidney stones. He had boils. Uh, he had terrible gout that would sometimes lend him in bed for two months. He couldn't walk. Right, you know? right. This book is really about Ben, but also about, as you say, these women who uh, surrounded him and, and many of them supported him. And some were jilted by him in a way. It's, it's, and he was jilted by them. It's fascinating. What, in retrospect, looking back, why is this an important story to share? I, I believe it is because we get to learn about our founding fathers. They're human beings, and we get a better picture of them. But what's your take on why this is so important? Thank you, Jordan. I'm glad you asked that question because it's more than um, just, um, you know, well, well-documented uh, theories and letters and entertainment. It's really that the iconic view of Ben is one of this perfect, well, one calls it an arch-rationalist, always guided by reason and logic. And honestly, this is an old-fashioned kind of a view. Uh, you know, earlier historians, uh, you know, made these, you know, these absolutely perfect figures of our founding fathers. And we're beginning to find out in the late 20th and, and, and uh, certainly in the 21st century, uh, the human side of them. And that they are very much, you know, flawed like any other human being. And my personal view in this book is that this facade of utter reason and utter lack of emotion for everything he did is really not true. That indeed, what is beneath that is a man who struggled privately with prudence and passion. Well said and exceedingly well researched and written as as all of your work is, Nancy. Congratulations. This is a masterwork and I know you've got many more up your sleeve but I I loved it I thought it was as as quick and exciting as any novel I've read about the period so thank you very much thank you I it's it's my pleasure I'm glad you liked the book and I and I hope that other people who read it will too I got a kick out of it I mean I got a kick out of the flirtations and the ups and downs and and these women are totally fascinating and totally interesting and uh, that and the description of the period struggles that people had just to get communication back and forth <laughs> unbelievable Nancy congratulations poor Richard's women a must read I certainly recommend it thank you so much Thanks again to Nancy. Her website, nancyrubinstewart.com. The book, Poor Richard's Women, Deborah Reed Franklin and the Other Women Behind the Founding Father. As always, I thank Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, everyone at Chart Productions here in Boston, and you, the listeners, growing in numbers every single week. Certainly appreciate that. Don't forget to visit jordanrich.com for much more on the podcast and all the goings on. Till next time, this is JR saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.